Good morning, I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're currently looking at the third chapter of the fourth gospel, which begins with this conversation between Yeshua and Nicodemus. Now, if you read it in John chapter 3, you can read this conversation in a couple minutes. But I think it probably lasted for hours into the night as Nicodemus is just questioning Yeshua about trying to understand all that he can. Now remember, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. And there are some historical indications that he's one of the three wealthiest people in Jerusalem at that time. Which means that he had reached high levels of influence. You know, money, that brings a lot of influence. Plus all his standing in the Sanhedrin and the Pharisee and all this stuff. And as a member of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, he was a very elevated Jew. He's at the top of the religious system in Judaism. Now, the Pharisees presented themselves as knowing everything about the law and the sacred Scriptures. But had Nicodemus known what the Scriptures meant by what they said, he might have been able to grasp what was going on with this teaching that the Lord's telling him about, you need to be born from above, you need to be born of water and the Spirit. Maybe that would have made sense for him, but he, he knew what they said. But he didn't know what they meant. Because this, these teachings that the Lord has given him should have brought to his mind what the Tanakh taught about the pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. Isaiah prophesied that Israel will not be restored to Yahweh until the Spirit was poured out. We see this in Isaiah 32. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered as a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fertile field. So, they should have understood this, the pouring out of the Spirit. And I'm sure that Nicodemus knew this text. But again, he didn't know what it meant. He felt that because he was a Jew, that guaranteed him entrance into the kingdom of God. So Yeshua's statement that he had to be born from above, that kind of confused Nicodemus. What do you mean, born? I'm, I'm a Jew, I'm getting in the kingdom. Kind of confused him. So Yeshua reworded it in a way that Nicodemus should have been able to grasp. He said, you must be born of the water and of the Spirit. Now, if you compare being born of the water and the Spirit, it's just a different way of saying what said in verse 3, of you have to be born again. They're saying the same thing. The word of here, the preposition of, governs both water and Spirit. This means that Yeshua was clarifying the birth from above, or regeneration, by using two terms to describe the new birth. He's not saying that two separate things have to happen for regeneration to take place. It's one thing. It's the water and spirit. They're together. Now, Yeshua tells Nicodemus that no longer just being in a covenant relationship with God was a matter of being born into that covenant relationship. You know, you're of the seed of Abraham, so you're okay, you're good. No. He had to be born from above through the action of the Holy Spirit. He said, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. There's two. You got a flesh and you got spirit, and the flesh doesn't get the spirit, and you have to have the spirit to be alive. The only reality that fresh the flesh can produce is flesh. And that's why when you're talking to somebody about spiritual things, if they're just flesh, they're not going to get it. There's no spiritual connection there. They have to have the spirit. And he gives them an illustration. He said, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it? You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. He says, so is everyone born of Spirit. You see the results. You don't understand. It's sovereign. The coming of the Holy Spirit is not something that can be explained by man. 
The wind can't be seen, but the sound can be heard. He said the Spirit can't be seen, but the Spirit's voice can be seen in the hearts of those who have been regenerated. So the new birth and the new life that comes with it are the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't cause the Spirit to bring about the new birth any more than we cause the wind to blow. And to this teaching, Nicodemus responds, How can these things be? This guy's just totally clueless. Okay, he doesn't get it. Now, if you examine this text, one thing you'll see is that each of Yeshua's statements to Nicodemus is longer than the previous statement. And each successive remark of Nicodemus gets shorter. The Lord's answers get longer. Nicodemus goes, see this Pharisee who this great teacher has met the teacher. All right? He is standing before the greatest teacher that ever lived. And Nicodemus is kind of dumbfounded by Yeshua's teaching. He can't grasp how these things can be. He can't grasp it because he's operating only in the flesh. He can't understand. He can't grasp spiritual things. He can't get the supernatural. Now, Nicodemus had for years taught the condition of entrance into the kingdom of God or being born a Jew. It was obedience to the law, following the teachings of the Scripture. Well, in verse 10, Yeshua answered him and He said, Are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things? You know, that's kind of like, what? You're supposed to be the teacher? And it's a definite article here. It's the teacher of Israel. Now, this can mean that he was the preeminent teacher of the Word of God in Israel. Being a Pharisee and being skilled in the things of the Old Covenant law, he may have been the leading teacher of the Word of God among the Pharisees. Or this could simply mean that he was a distinguished teacher. Either way, he is a teacher who knows the Word of God. He he stands out in Israel as a teacher, and he says, you're the teacher, and you don't even get this? Something's wrong here. You know, he would have known passages like Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 36. Now watch this passage. You know, this so ties in with what the Lord is saying in John 3. He says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean. He's cleansing them. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Here we see water and spirit that Yeshua talked about of being born of water and spirit. They come together to signify cleansing from impurity and the transformation of a new heart. This would be a familiar passage to Nicodemus. You know, he would have also known Ezekiel 37, the very next chapter, the Valley of Dry Bones. You know, he takes him to this valley, Ezekiel, and he says, look at these, a bunch of bones laying all over. Son of man, can these bones live? And he's like, mm, I don't, you know, I don't know. You know, and he goes down in verse 14, he says, I will put my spirit within you, talking to Israel. Now watch what he says, and you will come to life. See, that's what happens when you receive the spirit, people. You come to life, and I'll place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and done it, declares Yahweh. With the Spirit comes life. No Spirit, no life. But maybe even more astounding is the passage in Proverbs that really seems to be a foundation to John 3. And if you, you know, take the time and compare these two passages, Proverbs 30, verse 4 through 5, listen to this. Who has ascended to heaven to come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? 
Who has wrapped up the waters in His garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is His name? And what is His Son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in Him. You see the similarity there to our text? He says, who has ascended to heaven? Now we haven't looked at that verse yet, but we're going to look at it. It's verse 13. Who gathered the wind in His fist? That's John 3, 5 and 3, 8. Who has wrapped the waters in His garments? Again, 3, 5. Who established all the ends of the earth? What's His name? What's His Son's name? That's verse 15 and 16. The Son of God. Surely you know every word of God proves true. Again, that's verse 15 and 16. So this seems to be the foundation of John chapter 3. And that's why Nicodemus should have got this. So how does Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, not get what Scripture's saying? How does he not get this? He doesn't get it because he doesn't have the Spirit. Which means he's dead. Which means he needs a new heart. He's just sitting there scratching his head going, I don't get any of this stuff. I don't get it. Remember what we just said in Ezekiel 37? I'll put my Spirit in you. And life. You'll come to life when you get the Spirit of God. Those dead bones came to life because of the Spirit of God. Nicodemus is just flesh. He is highly educated flesh. Nonetheless, flesh. And all the education in the world, I don't care how many initials you got behind your name, if you haven't been born of the Spirit, you don't know Jack. Okay? He can't understand spiritual things. You can look at the words, you can understand the words, but you just don't get it. Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14. This is a key verse, people. Paul just says the natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit. The word natural man, there's sukakos. It means the man without the Spirit. That's what he's saying. The man without the Spirit, the man who's just flesh, he doesn't get it. Why? Because they're foolishness to him. Have you were there at one time, right? Before you became saved, someone told you about the Word of God, and you're like, that just sounds foolish. You know? He cannot, not he will not, he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraising. He doesn't have the Spirit. So he can't understand them. Until man receives a new birth, he's blind to spiritual things. Look what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15. But their minds were hardened. Why? For until this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. They got a veil over their eyes because it's removed in Christ. So until you come to Christ, you got this veil. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. So they just, they don't get it. There's this veil, there's this blindness that's taken away in Christ. So until Yahweh gives a new heart, until man is born from above, he's dead to spiritual things, even if he's a very prominent teacher in Israel. All right, so Yeshua goes on then. He says, you just don't, you're a teacher, you don't get this. Let me explain it to you further. All right? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Now, there's a significant shift that takes place in this verse. Nicodemus disappears from the scene now, all right? The Greek text shows that the you words after verse 10 are plural instead of singular, as before, as they were before in 10. The dialogue shifts to a monologue, and the I of verse 11 shifts to we in a third-person discussion of Yeshua. So this is the third time in our conversation with Nicodemus that he says, truly, truly, amen, amen. It indicates something of great theological significance is to follow. This is important. So who is the we in this text? 
Well, some say that Yeshua is referring to the Godhead here. You know, that's possible, but it seems more likely that we is referring to Yeshua and John the Baptizer, who both have testified what they have seen. You know, John was on the scene. He was giving testimony to these Pharisees. He's talking to a Pharisee. Remember, John came, the Pharisees come to examine him. He's testifying to these. We have seen, you do not accept our testimony because when they came to John, they wouldn't accept what John had to say. They wouldn't receive the baptism. We see that in Luke 7.30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for them, not having been baptized by John. So the Pharisees just rejected it. We don't, we're not interested in that. So I think it's probably the we here is probably Yeshua and John the Baptist. They're both giving testimony and the Pharisees are rejecting it. Who's the you? Well, the you is Nicodemus, I think, and his fellow Pharisees. The you is plural. You, y'all do not accept, as we'd say it down south, y'all. Y'all don't accept our testimony. You could translate it like this. Nicodemus, I tell you individually, we speak what we know. We testify to what we have seen, but you and those who are represented by you, which would be Israel, do not receive our testimony. So they're just, they're not getting it. They're not accepting it. In verse 12 he says, if I told you earthly things, and you don't believe, how are you going to believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now notice the two ifs here. The first one is a first class conditional sentence, which is assumed to be true from the author's perspective or for his literary purposes. We would write this as since. Since I told you. That's a first class condition. If and it's true. The second one is a third-class condition, which means maybe yes, maybe no. It, it meant potential action. So if I tell you, I might not tell you heavenly things because you don't get there earthly, so I might not even go on and try to even tell you heavenly things. So what's he talking about here? Well, he used two earthly illustrations. He talked about birth, and that's an earthly illustration. He talked about the wind to explain basic spiritual truth about receiving new life from God. And just so you have nothing to do with your physical birth, you don't have anything to do with your spiritual birth. Just as the wind is sovereign and blows where it will, so is the Spirit sovereign in a new birth. These are earthly things. Now, if Nicodemus couldn't understand these simple illustrations, how would he ever be able to understand if Yeshua talked to him on deeper levels? Maybe about the Godhead, maybe about the incarnation, or substitution, his substitutionary death for sinners. He couldn't get any of that. Yeshua says has an effect that entrance into the kingdom depends absolutely on a new birth. If Nicodemus stumbles over this elementary point of entry, what's the use of going on to explain anymore? You, you didn't get the earthly things. I can't go any, any further, Nicodemus. That's, you know, you just, you're not getting it. And then in verse 13, he says this, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, this is a verse used quite often by preterists to prove that no one went to heaven prior to AD 70. <clears throat> but they used it out of context, because that's not what this verse is talking about. And, and I'm talking about myself here. I've used this verse too. That's a problem with, you know, people call me, what do you think of this? And I'm like, haven't taught on that passage yet, got no opinion. Okay? Because it's, it doesn't do me any good to give an opinion, because until you put it in the context of the rest of the verses and get it that way, you're not getting what it's saying here. So we, you know, Preterists and I've just jerked this verse out of context. Nobody's ever gone to heaven. See what it says. That's what it says, right? But if you look at it in context, you can see that's not what it's talking about at all. These verses are talking about the knowledge of God. And Yeshua is saying, this is not obtained by man going from earth up into heaven to receive it. In other words, no one has ascended to heaven. And the idea of going to heaven was to get this knowledge. 
but whose essential and eternal nature is heaven, has by taking on human flesh, descended as the Son of Man to disclose the Father. In other words, no one's gone up to get knowledge. I'm bringing you the knowledge. I've come from there. That's the whole thing. The implication is that no one has both ascended to heaven and received divine revelation and then descended to earth to give out that revelation in the same way that Yeshua has as the incarnate Word of God. So the background for Yeshua saying this is found in Deuteronomy. Again, we go back to the law. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you. It's not out of reach. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us and get it? Who will make us hear it that we may observe? See, the context is talking about you go up to heaven to receive divine truth, receive knowledge, and then bring this knowledge back. No one needs to do this because Yahweh revealed Himself through His prophets and through His Son. He is saying, no one has ascended into heaven and returned, so no one is qualified to speak of them but He who came down from heaven. That's what he's talking about, all right? Not, no one's ever gone to heaven. No one's gone to heaven. No one from earth has ever gone up there and come back again to bring us information. That's basically what he's saying here. This does not mean that no one's ever gone to heaven. That's not what it's saying at all. Now, as a general rule, believers didn't go to heaven before the resurrection in AD 70. But, Yahweh made some exceptions. There's some people that did go to heaven. Some of the martyrs about Elisha, you know, I mean, there, there's been exceptions. Elijah, you know, he was an exception. Noah, was it Noah? No, it wasn't Noah. Enoch. Enoch walked with God and guess what? He was not. Where'd he go? People say he didn't go to heaven. Really? So let me get this straight. He walked with God and he was in fellowship with God and God took him and put him somewhere away from him. That Does that make sense to you? Oh, I'm having such a great time of fellowship with Enoch. I'm going to get rid of him. Go hide him somewhere. No, he just brought him into his fellowship. You say, we can't, God can't do that because John 3.13 says, no, 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 it doesn't say that. All right. That's what you got to get. It's not a violation of that at all. As a general rule, people didn't go. But again, you always have a fellowship with the United States. Man, this is sweet. Just come on. Let's come on. Let's get rid of this interference of the flesh and just come be with me. Cool. Paul Harris says this about this text. He says, note, however, the lexical similarities with 151. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending. And remember, he's talking about someone coming from heaven. And here we have angels coming from heaven. In both texts, we have ascending, descending, and the Son of Man. Both these texts, 151 and 313. You got all these things happen at the same time. So here, through the ascent and descent, is symbol is accomplished by the Son himself, not the angels. The angels are doing it in 151. And the point of the Jacob story, which is Genesis 28, and we believe that's what 151 is based on, that's the background of that. You see this communication and this relationship between heaven and earth, God and men. That's a major theme of this gospel, this fourth gospel. This communication comes through the angels in Genesis 28 and in 151, but here, most appropriately, that comes directly from the Son. Yeshua is saying, I am the only one who has come down from heaven. And the message that I bring is that you must be born from above. Salvation is not a work you participate in. It is a work of God. 
He refers to himself a number of times in this phrase he uses here, the Son of Man. He comes down out of heaven. All right? Yeah. This is a phrase that John will use over and over, this idea of coming down. All right? He came down from heaven. You see it in 33 here? For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven. That's where it came from. I have come down from heaven. He says, not to do my own will. And 651, he says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. He says in 842, I proceed forth and have come from God. That's the point. Yeshua comes from God. So guess what? He can give us information about God. He can tell us what we need to know. Over and over he says that. What's the significance? He's revealing his divinity. And he's revealing, listen, I can tell you what I know. I've been there. Now, what's interesting is that in Jewish intertestamental literature and later rabbinic accounts, Moses is portrayed as ascending to heaven to receive Torah and descending to distribute it to men. You see that in some of the Targums. But in contrast to these Jewish legends, the Son is the only one who's ever made the ascent and descent, he says. I'm bringing the information. The point is the heavenly origin of the Son of Man and the descent at least here, seems to be talking about the Incarnation. I have come down to bring you information. And he calls himself the Son of Man. This is Yeshua's favorite self-designation. It's used over 80 times in the fourth gospel. The description comes from where? Daniel, chapter 7. I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. Coming on the clouds, this is a God thing, okay? This is divinity coming on clouds. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. What's interesting here is that the Son of Man possesses the same authority and receives the same worship as the Most High. That's interesting, right? This equality between the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days, who obviously is Yahweh, is further indicated in the fact that in Ezekiel chapter 1, you, ever, you know Ezekiel 1, that, all that weird stuff going on, you know, all these wheels and all this kind of crazy stuff? Well, in there, you see a figure, he says, like that of a man. In other words, you look and you see this, a man. You see a man there, but he calls this man the glory of Yahweh. So here is the glory. It's not a cloud. It's a person who is the glory of Yahweh. And in Daniel's vision, in Daniel 7, he calls the glory that characterized Daniel in Ezekiel's vision, that was the same that characterized Yeshua. So Yeshua is the glory of God. Leon Morris writes this, Jesus adopted the term firstly because it was a rare term and one without nationalistic association. It would lead to no political complications. In the fourth gospel, the term is always associated with Christ's heavenly glory or with the salvation he came to bring. So that's the idea of Son of Man. It's this picture of the glory. He is the glory of God coming to bring salvation. Now before we leave verse 13, let me bring out one more thing for those of you who are King James people. All right, um, If you look at this verse, that's how it is in the New American Standard, but you look at it in the King James, and the King James adds this, which is in heaven. The Son of Man, which is in heaven. The Son of Man's in heaven? Really? Now these words, which is in heaven, they're absent from the oldest manuscripts of John, which are P66 and P75. Now they do occur in others, sometimes with some variations. 
But in the critical edition, which is usually the basis of one of the more modern translations, um, these editors just felt like that doesn't really seem to fit. You know, and so they determined by all the evidence, they try to figure out what's genuine, this is critical scholarship, you know, textual criticism. They try to, what really belongs in there. And so they just feel like, well, these just don't, it just don't fit. And they say it's more likely that a scribe picked this up and put it in there than he left it out. So they, the modern translations don't put that in there. I think it was due more to a Christological development that a scribe added. And so it's not in there. You know, sometimes people freak out and they see the King James says that and the New American doesn't. So the King James is the only word of God. No, it's not. Okay. We can't even get into, you know, translations and all that's involved in that right now. But, uh, no, it's not. All right. And some of the newer translations are better because they have more evidence. They use the Dead Sea Scrolls. They use the Septuagint and they get more information. So that they give us a clearer picture. Metzger writes this. It seems best to regard the additional words as an interpretive gloss that reflected later Christological developments at a time when dogmatics was more influential than sensitive to chronology and historical development. So I think it's safe to say that modern translations got it right, and that's probably not the best rendering of that verse. All right, let's look at verse 14. This is a weird verse. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Hmm. Now, the background for this verse is what? Anybody know? What's he talking about? Okay. He's talking about Numbers chapter 21. All right. What happened? Edom had denied Israel permission to cross their land to get into Canaan. That's Numbers 20. All right. So Yahweh told Moses, don't fight against Edom. Told him this in Deuteronomy chapter 2. So Moses turned the people southeast. Now, the promised land was northwest to make a long, difficult journey around the land of Edom. Well, at this point, the Israelites grew impatient, if you can imagine that, okay? (laughs) I mean, they had just come from victory over the Canaanites in Numbers 21. So why couldn't they just march through Edom? We'll kill them all if they don't like it. If they don't want us going through the land, we'll just wipe them out, all right? But he says no, so they turn southeast, and what do they do as they turn southeast? They start grumbling. They start being their, you know, typical Israelite selves, and they grumble against God. That's where we pick the text up. The people spoke against God and Moses. You really want to speak against God? I mean, especially if you're an Israelite, how much have you already seen happen? How dumb are you people? You know? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water. Watch, we loathe. This miserable food. Wow. The bread from heaven. God, we load this stinking stuff. We're sick of manna. You're providing for us supernaturally, meeting our needs. We're sick of it. We're sick of you. We're sick of wandering around. I'm like, why didn't God just go, pick a new people. Start over. Because no matter who you pick, guess what? You get the same scenario. (laughs) Okay? As long as you pick the human, you get the same scenario. All right, so so here's what Lord does. He says, okay, you want to complain? So Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so the people of Israel died. Hmm. All right, here they are complaining. All of a sudden, snakes everywhere biting you. And let me let you in on a little secret here. What I think is going on here is I think there's snakes biting people. 
I don't think there's anything else going on here. I don't think this is some, you know, are these other gods or what is going No, I think they're just snakes in the wilderness, you know, and they're biting people because God said, all right, you want to you gripe and complain? Here's something to complain about. They're biting them and they're dying. And so the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned. Boy, they catch on quick, don't they? Every time God sends judgment, wait a minute, we've sinned because we have spoken against Yahweh and you. Now watch, intercede with Yahweh that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Moses is a very gracious person, okay? I'd be like, no way, you just, you know, let the snakes bite you all and you all die, okay? But he interceded. Then Yahweh said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, bronze serpent, and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he'll live. Wow, how about that? Isn't that interesting? The Lord uses this as an analogy to salvation. They're bitten, they know there's a problem, they look to the thing, the serpent, and guess what? They're alive. They don't have to do anything else, just look and live. And Moses made a bronze serpent. He put on a standard. It came about that if a serpent bit anyone, there's a condition. you got to be bitten. you got to know there's a problem. When he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. There's so much behind this story. Okay, They, they viewed serpents as having life-giving powers, you know. A lot of the people have these, you know, snake amulets and all this. Why do you think they looked at the serpent and thought, this has rejuvenating power? Because it shed its skin. And they would see this new life emerge, and they thought, whoa, this is amazing, look at this. And they, they literally, a lot of them will wear these little amulets and all this stuff because they just thought of the snake as that. And so he takes the snake and puts it on a pole. You ever seen a snake on a pole in any emblems we have? The medical community, you know? Because that's, they viewed this snake as having healing powers. And so even to today, you got these two snakes intertwined on a pole, you know? And that's where that comes from, alright? Alright, so this is a strange story. But before we get into it, let me ask you this. Does making a bronze serpent seem to conflict what Yahweh told the children of Israel earlier? Yeah, didn't He tell them to do that? Look at that. Moses makes a bronze servant, but look at Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness which is in heaven above or the earth beneath. Is the snake a likeness of something which on the earth beneath? Yeah, so doesn't it violate this command? Well, not really. Well, not really, because see, this is not the end of the command. you got to go into the next verse, alright? Look at the next verse. You shall not worship them or serve them. The whole purpose of not making images was because of idolatry. It was, I don't want you worship. It wasn't a problem with making something. It was a problem with worshiping something. But people today still have this idea of, you got this image. No, you can't have any pictures. You can't have any you know, statues or anything. They're fine as long as you're not on your knees worshiping these things. It wasn't wrong to make an image. The worship of them was wrong. When they built that calf, they were worshiping it. Alright? So the children of Israel, they acknowledge their sin. They come to Moses, they ask him to pray for a remedy. We, we need, can you do something? We, we made a mistake. People are dying. And so they're desperate. They need a relief. So God tells Moses, make this bronze serpent, put it on a pole. Everyone in Israel had been bitten. Will live. They just look at the serpent. So what's the purpose? What's the significance of a serpent on a pole? And how does this relate to Yeshua? Well, S.L. Johnson says this. 
And the serpent suggests the activity of the serpent, Satan, in the Garden of Eden. In fact, the term brass is nekasheth, which is very closely related to nakash, the Hebrew word for serpent. Well, that's true. Those things are related. So Yeshua is saying, let me give you an analogy. I'm kind of like Satan on a pole. Hmm? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. He connects it with Satan. All right, Stephen Cole writes this. These people knew the story of the detested snake in the garden that attempted Eve and was at the root of all evil. All right. Now hang on for your to your hats for a while, okay? I want to throw out some stuff here. And I want you to just evaluate it, okay? I don't want you to buy it. I don't want you to reject it. I want you to think about it. All right. Is this is Yeshua talking about Satan? All right, is that what he's talking about in this text? Let me ask you this. Did the children of Israel know the story of Genesis 3? Huh? You would hope so? All right. And if they did know, how did they know? Yeah. Did they have a copy of Genesis that they carried around with them in the desert? Okay, he says oral tradition. But see, this isn't their tradition. This is Israel, all right? So they're walking around in the desert and had Moses written this? All right, I want to share with you a very different idea. You know, you guys are conservative, so this is maybe a little bit hard to grasp at first, but I think if you take time and think about it, I want to share with you a very different idea about this text, about Genesis 3, all right? This view is presented on one of the Naked Bible podcasts on Podcast 103 by Michael Heiser. Let me tell you a little bit about Heiser here. All right, just hang on, listen to this. Heiser's a Bible scholar. All right, he's got a PhD in Hebrew Bible, ancient Semitic languages. He can do translation work in roughly a dozen ancient languages. Among them, Biblical Hebrew, Biblical Greek, Aramaic, Syriac, Egyptian hieroglyphics, Phoenician, Moabite, Ugaric cuneiform. All right. Now I said all that to say, not to say that whatever he says is right. What I want you to understand, he's not, he's not a dummy. Okay. This man is learned. He has studied. He reads the original text. Now Heiser says this. He says, I think there's a very good chance that no Israelite, none of the Israelites had ever heard of the serpent story in the Garden of Eden when this is happening in real time. None of them ever heard that. He says, you have an entire Bible. You cannot assume that an Israelite had the entire Bible. And frankly, you can't even assume that an Israelite living in Moses' day had any Bible at all. See, we just, we presuppose whatever us, whatever we have, whatever we think, we put it on them. That's wrong. We can't do that. Jesus is saying that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up. He has no reference back He's not talking about Satan. He's not talking about Genesis 3, he says. He's talking about Numbers 21. We got that, right? That's what he's alluding to. He says none of these people were thinking about the Garden of Eden either because they didn't have that story. Now, I think I can prove this, that they didn't have Genesis 3. They didn't know Genesis 3. They didn't know the story. He goes on to say this. He says, you're the sort of person with a high view of Scripture. And that's all of us, okay? He says, you basically have two options. 
Now, he eliminates the JEPD option. You know, there's some people that they the option of JEPD, the, you know, the Torah is just written by all these different people, and it gets kind of crazy. That's, he, he rejects that view. But he says you have two options. One of the view is that Moses wrote Genesis 3. Okay, you accept that out of the gate, he says. That's the starting point. Moses wrote Genesis 3. Moses is the guy in the story in, in Numbers 21. And so mentally you assume without any actual data. I love the way he says that. You assume without any data, any information. You just assume that, that Moses, this is going to, he goes, this is going to sound comical. That Moses had written Genesis 3 and that everybody there had read it. And it is comical when you think about it, you know. Yeah, turn in our Bibles to Genesis 3. They're like, what? Where did we get the Bible from? Had Moses written that already? He says Moses couldn't write Genesis 1 through 11 by experience or by the traditions of his own people because that's all primeval history. He says we really don't have any actual evidence that the Israelites living the events of Numbers 21 would have ever heard the story of Adam and Eve before they're getting bitten by these fiery serpents to make some sort of association. In other words, the, the snake and they're coming out there, they're not thinking, they don't know that story. He says, an association we make because we read Genesis 3 before we read Numbers 21 and these sort of things kind of glom together in our heads. Oh yeah, I know what's happening here because I read Genesis 3. They're not doing that. Alright, now, so that's the first view. Moses wrote Genesis 3. Here's the second view. Hang on. The second view, other than Moses wrote Genesis 3, is, surprise, surprise, Moses didn't write Genesis 3. <laughs> that's the other view. I think you can get that, right? And Heiser says this, I actually think this one makes more sense. He says, this is my preference. And that's this view, he says. And I've expressed it before on the podcast, but the view is that Genesis 1-11 to was written later than Moses' lifetime. He says, I personally think Genesis 1-11 through was written during the exile in Babylon. Much later time. Now you first hear that and you're like, What? That sounds crazy. I mean, we all know Moses wrote Genesis, right? Did he write every bit of it? Now he goes on to try to, he's going to try to demonstrate this. You know, he doesn't just believe this because he's out there in La La Land. There's, there's good, strong evidence for this. All right. He says, since A, there are many specific texts, philologically, that's linguistic kind of stuff, philological connections, very specific connections to Babylon or Mesopotamian literature in general, in these 11 chapters. So if you understand the text and you're reading these 11 chapters, you see this Mesopotamian influence all through there. And you're like, well, that's interesting. He says, secondarily, B, my other reason for thinking it was it was written during the exile is that there are very few, very few specific Egyptian connections in Genesis 1-11, through 11, which you would sort of expect if it was composed in the immediate Mosaic era. See, instead of Genesis 1-11 through 11 taking shots at the Mesopotamian gods and the Babylonian stories, you would expect it to take shots at the gods of Egypt. Because they just left Egypt. God is picking on them and beat them up, and then we had the Exodus. But he says, and here we are at Sinai and that kind of thing. But you don't get that. In other words, you, don't, you read Genesis 1-11, through 11, you don't get a polemic against Egypt or the gods of Egypt. You get a polemic against the gods of Mesopotamia. And you're like, how does that work out? He says you get a very distinct Mesopotamian flavor in Genesis 1-11. through 11. 
And I can give you some information on how you can look at this yourself and prove this, all right? And so that's where the Israelites are in exile. They're in Babylon. And a lot of material in Genesis 1 through 11 is specifically dissing Babylonian religion, Babylonian deity, all that sort of stuff. This is what I think a lot of people don't get. A lot of the stuff we see in the scripture is associated with other gods and other cultures, and Yahweh is literally dissing them, literally joking, making fun of them, saying, no, no, it's not them at all. It's Yahweh that does this. Isaiah 19, you know, Isaiah is the cloud rider. He comes in riding the cloud. That was Baal's description. He said, no, no, Baal's not the cloud rider. Yahweh is the cloud rider. And this is all through there, but we have to understand that culture to get some of this flavor. He says, so that's why I think it makes more sense to have Genesis 1 through 11 written later than the Mosaic error. Now listen to what he says. Written by someone else in the believing community that God chose to write that. Chose to, in my view, actually choose to append it to the material that begins with the family history of Israel, Genesis 12 on. So he's saying, see, Abraham or Moses would have known that family history from 12 on, but maybe not this other stuff, so God appended this later. Now listen, he has a very high view of Scripture. And so to say that Moses didn't write that doesn't mean, oh, that's going against inspiration. No, God inspired someone to write that. He just doesn't think it was Moses, and because it just doesn't fit. And see, many people, many scholars who aren't Christian use this to attack the Bible. Because they say, oh, you say that, you know, Moses wrote all this. Moses couldn't have written this. There's a lot of others, you know, after his death, he's got stuff. Did he write that after he died? You know, how's that work out? He says this, back to Heiser. Genesis 1, there are specific points of contact with Enuma Elish. Y'all know what that is, right? Enuma Elish? You never read Enuma Elish? Okay, well, it's something you need to do, all right? Enuma Elish is the story of the elevation of Marduk's supremacy. All right, this is a Mesopotamia creation story. All right? And you got Enuma Elish. What it mean? It means from on high. That's the opening words of this myth. Okay? It starts with from on high, so that's translated Enuma Elish. And it's a story of their gods. It's a creation story. So you got these different gods, and these gods are, you know, got two to start with, and then they procreate, and so they're having other gods. And then you got the, you know, the two major gods are Apsu and Tiamat. Tiamat's the female, Apsu's the male. Apsu gets killed. All right? And so Tiamat's really mad because these other gods kill Aptu. So she puts together this big thing. We're going to kill all these gods. So these gods are frightened. What are we going to do? And so they elect Marduk. You're probably familiar with him. He's in the Bible, okay? They elect Marduk. And they say, Marduk, if you will go and you will fight Tiamat, and if you will defeat Tiamat, we'll make you the supreme god. You can be head daddy rabbit around here, okay? You can be in charge of everything. So he says, well, at great peril to his life, he says, okay, I'll go and I'll fight with Tiamat. So Marduk goes to fight Tiamat, and he, this vicious battle ensues, and he finally beats her, and when he beats her, he cuts her in half down the middle, and he takes one half, and he puts it up, and he creates the heavens. And he takes the other half, and he smashes it down, and he creates the earth. And so now he's just made a world out of this dead god, and then he creates people, and you know, he creates all well, the sun, moon, stars, all the planets, and all the stuff, and then the gods are complaining, because now since you created all this stuff, we all got little duties, and we're doing all these little things, and we really don't like these duties, we need some help, so then, okay, I'll create humans, and humans will serve you. And that's kind of how the story goes, you know. So it's this wild creation story. And, and you know, so you read that, and, and listen, if you read 
this creation myth, all right, Anuma Elish, if you read this thing, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there's some, you know, you, but as you read it, you're going to see Genesis in there. And see, people come across this and they say, did the Bible just copy this creation myth? No, it didn't. You know, because the Bible's different than this version. Because in this version, these gods are battling, and, and, and you know, Marduk has to go through this great battle with Tiamat to create heaven and earth. Well, then you get to the creation story, and what happens? Yahweh says, let there be earth, and boom. And they're like, well, Yahweh just speaks, and well, Marduk's got to go through all this horrendous battle to put in place. No, no, you see, Yahweh's so great, he just speaks, and boom. And so it's all dissing these gods. It's really cool stuff, people. And like I said, if you just, you know, it's not a, it's not a real big document. You know, the, the epics of Gilgamesh, very interesting stuff. Or Anuma Elish, both good stories. They're both found at the same time. They're both found in the Babylonian library, you know, in the 1800s. This guy found these things and he, you know, it took 30 years to translate it. And they, it, just some interesting stories that really tell us some things about scripture. So Marduk, he's the chief deity in the Babylonian Empire. This is 6th century BCE, BCE, and lo and behold, that's the time of the exile. Heiser says, when I say specific connections, there are places in Genesis where the Hebrew of Genesis mimes or mimics the syntax of Enuma Elish. Now again, you know, I mean, exact phrases he's saying. Specifically Genesis 1, 1 through 3. And this is, in the Enuma Elish, is the only other document we have where we have God speaking things into being. But the, again, the great difference is there's a huge battle that has to take place for him to create this stuff, for him to be able to do this, where that doesn't happen with Yahweh at all. He says, there's even grammatical congruence in the way the writer wrote. Where's the position of the verb? Where's the position of the conjunction? Where's the position of the noun? It mimes certain lines of Enuma Elish, and to the literate reader... Someone who knew both texts, the reason for doing so would have been very evident and would have been very obvious, as well as that the writer of Genesis wants you to think of the Babylonian story because he's going to poke it in the eye. So, see, the writer's just dissing these other gods. He's going to diss it, he says. He's going to turn it on its head and make a different theological point. And you need the text of Enuma Elish to do that. you got to understand it, right? So he's saying... How are you going to diss these Babylonian gods if you don't have the text of Enuma Elish to know what they even believe? And so he, he, Heiser says this, So is Moses carrying around in the desert one of these tablets of Enuma Elish? He says he couldn't in this case because it hadn't been written yet. Enuma Elish, the elevation of Marduk, it's called the elevation of Marduk because that's what happens in the story. You know, it's a creation myth, but Marduk in this story takes over and he's the supreme god. So that they call it the elevation of Marduk. It was written in the 6th century. So he goes, this century is after Moses lived and died. So it's a clear point of incongruence. So you're like, how do you have Moses writing this? You know, if it hadn't been written yet. He says, another example, Genesis 2 and 3, Garden of Eden story. You have the serpent story in the garden. And there are some clear similarities between the material and Gilgamesh. Another of the called... Apata, a text called Apata in the South Wind, he says, Genesis 5, the list of genealogies, scholars have known for a couple of centuries that the Sumerian king list was discovered, and that list of kings in the Sumerian king list, pre and post flood, there's a relationship between the list of names and the events in Genesis 5. You see these connections. 
He says they're just connections there. He says for that to make sense, the writer would have had to be doing something deliberate with that text, with the Samaritan text. He says Genesis 6, 1 through 4. He says we talked about this before in the unseen realm and on the podcast. The story of Apkalu, drawn directly from Mesopotamian material. Genesis 6 through 9, the flood story. You have parallels in Eridu, Genesis, and the epic of Gilgamesh, and the Athrahasis epic, down even to the birds that get to go from the ark and come back to the ark. I mean, same story. The whole thing. Now, he says it has differences. There are differences in the accounts, differences in the story and the way they're told, but there's a lot of connections because he wants the connections to be there. Genesis 10, you have the table of nations. The table of nations shows that Israel's not included in that table because they haven't existed yet. He says the whole Mediterranean, but largely Eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East, Babylon map of the world, has some congruence there. You have the stories of Nimrod. The closest candidate to identifying Nimrod come from Assyrian material. It's Mesopotamian material. You have the reference to Ziggurat, the Tower of Babel. He says it's all Mesopotamian. So Genesis 1 through 11, he says, is littered with Mesopotamian elements. And I doubt that Moses was hauling around a library of cuneiform tablets around in the desert. So he's like, how did Moses had no knowledge of this information? <laughs> yeah. He says, to me, the biggest argument is that Genesis 1 through 11, the collections that are there are polemic. And that's what we don't understand, I think, a lot of times. These are polemic. And you would expect if Moses is writing in an Egyptian context, their deliverance from Egypt, that he'd be dissing the Egyptian gods. But that isn't what happens. He says that happens in Exodus 15 and Exodus 12. He says, this night I'll have victory over the gods of Egypt. And that's the whole point of that story. And that's what he says. I'm getting victory over the gods of Egypt. That's what all this battle's about. But you don't see that in Genesis 1 through 11. He says all that kind of stuff happens with the plagues, but it doesn't happen in Genesis 1 through 11. That's the point we're making. Okay, that's the end of Heiser. That's the end of the quote. If you want to get that podcast and listen to the whole thing, it's fascinating. A lot more, a lot more material in there. Um, I, I just think this is a view worth looking into. All right, um, it's a view you never may have heard before. And again, I want you to understand this is not an attack on inspiration at all. You know, God inspired this, but He inspired it for a purpose. And there's just strong arguments here that I think are worth looking at. You know, how, how, the, how are they dissing all these Babylonian gods that, you know, Moses didn't have this information? Now, I said all that <laughs> to simply say that the serpent in Numbers 21 has nothing to do with Genesis 3. Okay, and these guys who are connecting about, you see the word serpent, you see Nakash. Oh, I know where I've seen that before. Nakash, let's go back to Genesis 3 and let's connect the two Nakashes. All right. I remember we did a study on Satan a while back and I said Nakash is a triple entendre. All right, it can mean different things. It can mean shining, it can mean serpent, it can mean just a snake. You know, it has these different meanings. Well, I think in Numbers 21, it's a snake. It's just a snake. They were in the desert, there's snakes in the desert, these snakes are biting people, and it says, you know, the fiery bite. Why is it burn? You get bit by a snake, the poison, there's a burn, all right? So the people are suffering, and they're, they're dying, and they say, we need some help, all right? So in our text in John 3, 314 here, Yeshua is comparing himself to the image of the bronze serpent that God had Moses construct and raise above the heads of the people. The story of the bronze serpent foreshadows is an analogy of salvation which God provided through the Son of Man. That's the connection. You know, and if you're going to 
connect this somehow to Satan, you're going to get all messed up. How in the world does Satan have anything to do with this? God had graciously provided continuing physical life to the persistently sinning Israelites. It should not, therefore, be hard to understand. It shouldn't be hard for Nicodemus to believe that he would graciously provide new spiritual life for sinful humanity. The bronze serpent in the wilderness was the salvation, the deliverance of those who believe. Now, if you, you know, Moses says, all you got to do is look to the serpent. You're like, that's nonsense. I don't believe that. I'm not going to look. And you're getting sicker, you know, and your leg's rotting off and you're dying. I don't believe this nonsense. I'm not going to look. If you don't believe, guess what? You're going to die in your sin because you just don't believe. But those who are bitten and say, hey, Moses said, look over there. I'm looking. They're looking in faith. They're believing what Moses told them. And guess what? Boom. Wow, that was pretty cool. That was simple enough, wasn't it? He's comparing himself with the serpent. He's teaching that whoever trusted him the way they trusted that look will have eternal life. He says, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is Yeshua's earliest recorded prediction of his death. It's an allusion to death by crucifixion. He uses it in 821, 1232, and 1234. And whenever the Greek word hoopso lifted up occurs in this gospel, and it occurs these four times, it combines the idea of crucifixion and exaltation. They go together. See, Lazarus' pattern is to combine two aspects of Yeshua into one word. He uses lifted up to describe both the death of Yeshua on the cross and the resurrection and the glorification of Yeshua. The word lifted up also means exalted. And it's used in the rest of the New Testament for Yeshua being exalted to the right hand of the Father after resurrection. Now for Lazarus, it's the whole scope of crucifixion, resurrection, exaltation. It focuses on attention on God, what God has done. So Moses lifted up the snake on a pole so that all who were afflicted in the camp would look at it and live. In the same way, the Son of Man is lifted up. Even Isaiah brings together the themes of being lifted up and being glorified in the context of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. Now, Jewish tradition was very clear that the healing of Israel in the wilderness with the bronze servant didn't happen because people looked at the bronze serpent. Rather, they understood the act of lifting up the serpent lifted the attention of the Israel above themselves to God. It was their focus on God that healed them. In other words, it's not that, oh, that snake's not healing anybody. It's bronze. It can't do much of anything. You know, it's just a thing on a pole. But they realized that God told them to do this. It was faith in Yahweh. That's what Yahweh said. That's what makes it important. And so I'm looking because I'm trusting that what Yahweh said is true. Now, there's an interesting midrash in, uh, in Wisdom of Solomon that compares the Numbers 21.9. Let's read Numbers 21.9 first. It says, And Moses made a bronze serpent, set on the standard, and it came about that if a person bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, Wisdom of Solomon is an apocryphal book. It says this in verse 6. Uh, they were troubled for a little while as a warning and had a symbol of salvation to remind them of the precept of the law. This symbol. They go on to say in the next verse, verse 7, chapter 16, For he who turned to it was saved. Not by what he saw, but by you, the Savior of all. See, that's the midrash on, on number. They're, they're, on, they're interpreting it. You, the serpent's not saving anybody. It's Yahweh who's saving because we're looking. 
We're doing what He told us. We're trusting Him. And Yeshua said in, in chapter 12, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw them into Myself. Now listen, people. These Jews who were bitten didn't have to do anything. When He looked to the bronze serpent, He lived. There's no works involved here. There's nothing. This chapter in John 3 is talking about salvation. And He says, guess what? You don't have to do anything. There's no restitution. Just look and live. Nicodemus is being challenged to turn to Yeshua for the new birth in much the same way the ancient Israelites were commanded to turn to the bronze serpent for life. Just believe. Just trust. This is the second time that Yeshua uses an illustration from the Tanakh. When he was speaking to Nathaniel, who was evidently reading against from Jacob in this vision of the ladder, with the angels ascending and descending, and now he turns to the incident of the children of Israel, what they experienced in the wilderness journeys when they disobeyed, and they complained against the Lord, and he sent fiery serpents. In the case of Jacob's vision, he interpreted, he said it was a, Yeshua was a mediator between God and man. Instead of the latter, he substituted God, the Son of Man, instead of the angels ascending and descending, it was the Son of Man himself. So Yeshua interpreted the latter as a reference to himself. A figure of connection between earth and heaven. The Son of Man is the meteor. He's a meteor between God and man. We don't need these angels. We've got the Son of Man now. This is how you communicate with heaven. Now this instant, he turns from the meteor to the method of mediation. And the method of mediation is the cross of the Lord Yeshua. Because it's by virtue of the cross that we're able to have a new relationship established with a God in heaven. Now, I want you to notice there's no baptism here. All right? And say, listen, you people need to find some water out here in the desert. You need to get wet and then look. Or you need to look and get wet. Not, you don't have that. It's not look and do your best not to ever complain against God again. Boy, if he said that, guess what? They're just, they'll kill me now. Yeah, kill me now, all right? It's not look and live a sinless life. Look and pray. It's look and pray the snake bite prayer, you know? No, you don't have to do any of that stuff. He says just simply look and live. No repentance. You got to promise you'll never do that again. No, just look. It's simple. Look and live. The divine remedy was provided by God and all they had to do was trust Him. Again, this doesn't have anything to do with the serpent. It's about Yahweh and trusting what He said. He said, you look and you'll live. And they did. So looking to Christ brings faith, eternal healing. And that's the next verse in this, and these verses are connected. So whoever believes will have eternal life. Just like them, just like they looked. You have to believe. Now, what's interesting here, believe here is present tense. We see this all through the gospel. Present continuance tense. Those who trust Christ, I think it's saying, will continue to trust Christ. Alright? I think this is perseverance of the saints. When someone believes the gospel, they continue to believe. But it's not about, you know, it doesn't say if you've ever believed in the past at one time. No. This is a continuous faith. Because if you are a believer, you don't stop trusting Yahweh. Life is about trusting Him. Present tense goes on all through this gospel. And you get eternal life. This Again, if you just read this story in context, it's so clear. Man, they got bit, they looked, they lived, you just trust Christ. This is the first reference in this gospel to eternal life. Now, eternal life refers to one's life in the age to come. Namely, in the kingdom age, the forever age. So the Jews divided time into two ages, present age and the age to come. 
Now, our present age is their age to come. We got that, right? But the adjective eternal was used of life in the coming age, not in the present age. The word eternal was used to describe the messianic age, the age of the Spirit, the kingdom of God. So when they talk about eternal life, they're talking about this new age, this kingdom. But since the age to come was thought of as never coming to an end, the adjective came to mean everlasting or eternal. You see, that's not, you look at Ionas, it, it doesn't mean, you know, going on forever, but that's how it came to me because it referred to that age. And that age was an eternal age. There was no end to that age. Guess what? There's no last days to this age we're living in. Okay? Because it's an eternal age. Eternal life is a life that doesn't cease. It's eternal. I think you got that, right? These two verses, 14 and 50, the watch, the comparison, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, here's the other side of the comparison, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believes, they had to look, they had to look in faith though, and you have to look in faith, will in Him have eternal life. In verses 14 and 15, Yeshua really answers Nicodemus' question from verse 9. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? How can this happen? How can it be? Well, a person's regeneration by the Holy Spirit, which enables him to enter the kingdom of God, came about only through the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of the Son of Man. He's saying, this is how it is. I've provided all that is needed. I give life. That's how it can be. It's not anything you could ever accomplish on yourself. And so you're looking at this and you're dumbfounded saying, I just don't understand this happening. Someone else did it for you. It's all been provided. It's all there. And all a person has to do is look and live. Just trust it. That's the call. There's nothing else, people. And today, in our age, people are adding everything to the gospel. And the sad thing is, is I think you have a lot of Christians running around today that don't even think they're Christians. And if you're a Christian and you don't think you're a Christian, what's your motivation to live a righteous, holy life? You feel God hasn't accepted you because you're not doing all the things that other people tell you you got to do to be a Christian. Well, listen. Again, we've talked about this over and over. Acts 15. You know, so many different places. Salvation is simply believing the gospel. Don't add anything to that. Don't let anybody add anything to that. Okay, because that's, it's a work of God. And just like those people in the Israelite desert walking around on their deathbed because they've been bit and they think life is over, I'm going to die. Well, I have an option. I'll look and live. That's what we're called to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, what a great illustration. What a beautiful story, Father, about your love for us. That you provided everything. You lifted your son up. You put him to death. You exalted him pay for our sin debt. And we're wandering around here snake bit by sin and all we have to do is look to you. Thank you, Father, for providing everything we needed. 